Romans 14, we're going to take quite a big chunk um, here, the, the first 12 verses of 14. Uh, but most likely from here into the rest of the chapter, we're going to take bigger chunks than we had in the past. Um, it's just kind of how it's written, and I think it's be fine for us to study it in that way. Um, we also try to finish this before before the seniors get out of here. So, um, so I'm going to try to finish this up for you guys, okay? But we're not going to rush it. We're not going to... I can go too fast. Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. If you would follow along with me. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. All right, there's a lot there in that passage. Allow me to pray for our time together in his word. Lord God, I ask that you would speak to us tonight through your word. God, that you would strengthen me, give me your words to speak, give me the physical strength to preach. Lord, give us the ears to hear, your spirit to convict. God, that your grace would be upon us tonight. Lord, I pray that we would leave here not the same. Lord, I pray that we would worship you in this time. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So some of you guys know, some of you guys may not. When I was uh, going to junior high, my family moved. Actually, from here, we were in here. We were at this church, and we decided to move to Kansas City, Missouri. If anyone knows where that is, good job. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's really not important, okay? But we decided to move to Kansas City, Missouri, halfway across the country. And um, it's literally probably like right in the middle of the country. And just growing up here in the Bay Area and then moving to somewhere like Kansas City, Missouri, was really quite the culture shock. Uh, We we were very, very different than the people there. I'm not going to get into all the details of how we were different, but we were different. Or rather, they were different. That's what I mean. (laughs) They were different. We were were not. Anyways, we went out there because my dad went to seminary there um, so that he could... Uh, get his degree and become a pastor, things like that. Anyways, and being part of seminary, um, sometimes they would send these men in seminary to go to different churches. There are a lot of small churches around that area in Kansas City that didn't have pastors. And so they would give opportunities to guys in seminary to go preach at these churches. And so we would often go to new churches, uh, at least new to us, that is, um, and we'd be new people in these churches. And I'm telling you, just my family is very different than the families there. And so we always felt different. And I remember, just to give you an example, um, some of you staff might remember this. I've said this before. Uh, I remember walking into a church one time. You have to understand, um, you have to understand this. I'm from a mixed family, you can see, maybe. I'm mixed. I'm half Asian. My mom is full Asian. And my dad, he's, he's the white one in the family. And anyway, so we walk into the church. And I remember the very first thing, right as we're walking to the lobby, 
this sweet little chubby white boy comes up to us and says, Are you from China? <laughs> said, uh, no, California. <laughs> like, I don't know. But we were like the, the, the first Asian people he's ever seen. And so just we were very different is what I'm saying than what most of them were used to and expected. But even so, I'm telling you, out of all the churches we went to and, and being just feeling so different and looking so different than, than all of them, I will say this, that we always, we always felt very loved and welcomed by those people. Every church we went to, even though we were vastly different in a lot of ways, culturally especially, we felt loved by them. And I remember that something that really stood out to us as we visited these churches. And a lot of these churches, they didn't have a lot of strong knowledge of the word of God. They weren't like doctrinally rich churches, but their hearts were big. They loved God and they loved people. Even despite the differences that they had with us, we felt and we knew that they loved us very much. And we spent two years there in Kansas City, Missouri. And that was one of probably the biggest takeaways as we left was, man, these churches out here really love people. Now, Paul here begins a new section in his letter. And it's one of the longest sections as it goes right here from 14, verse 1, all the way to 15, verse 13. It's, It's a pretty large section. And it's his last main section before he begins his closing remarks. And the section that we're entering tonight has to do with unity within the body and love for one another. Basically, getting along with other Christians. And as easy as it should be to get along with other Christians, if you've been a Christian for some time, you know it's not always easy to get along with other Christians. And this was applicable for the Christians back then, and it's certainly applicable for us today as well. So Paul begins this new section calling the Christian to not judge one another. That despite the differences and the disagreements that we may have within the body of Christ, at the end of the day, we are not called to judge those who disagree with us. Rather, we are called to love them. Now, why should we love one another despite our differences and disagreements? Paul gives us three reasons, I believe, in these 12 verses. Because One, because God already accepts them. So we should too. Secondly, because God's glory is our purpose in life. Not just to judge them. And thirdly, because God is judge, not us. So those are going to be the three main points that we look at this evening. So first, God accepts them. Verses 1 through 5. God accepts them. Verses 1 through 5. Your first point here is that the Christian is called to accept other Christians, not judge them. The Christian is called to accept other Christians, not judge them. Now, what exactly was the judging that was going on here? It's kind of confusing. Let me kind of help out a little bit. What exactly was the judging going on? Paul and his command here to not pass judgment on one another, it is pretty broad in how he presents it. However, he does give some specifics as to what was going on. And he referenced two types of people, the strong and the weak. And he references two types of issues that they may have been disagreeing on and judging each other because of it. And that was eating and what I'm going to call holy days. And I'll explain that when we get there. So let's briefly look at the two types of issues, the eating and the holy days. And again, while it's not clear what the exact issue was, he doesn't tell us specifically of either of these things, there are a few different possibilities. So in regards to the eating, one possibility of the eating could have been eating clean food versus unclean food. Maybe that's what was happening. Now, there is no Old Testament law requiring Jews to to be vegetarians, and that's what the dispute was here. It says that some believe they may... Uh, eat anything while others only the weak person eats only vegetables but there were certain procedures in which that they needed to keep that is the old testament law keep food to be clean versus unclean so it's possible he's talking about uh keeping the food kosher It, it could have been jews stumbling with this possibly another possibility in regards to eating could have been gentile asceticism asceticism was a popular belief back then which basically denies all kinds of self pleasure the ascetic person, they didn't bathe. They only had like maybe one set of just plain clothes. 
and they ate very basic food. So it's possible maybe some of the Gentiles coming from an ascetic background, they brought these beliefs over to them when they converted to Christianity. And, and so they were the weaker brother that they're just eating vegetables. They're just eating plain food. That's possible. A third possibility could be that it was meat offered to idols. This is the problem that Paul spoke of in his letter to the Corinthians. And it's actually interesting to know that Paul is in Corinth when he's writing this letter to the Romans. And what happened in that situation is that people, people will be offering meat as a sacrifice to idols. And after they offer it to the idols, they don't just dispose of it, but instead they would sell it in the marketplace. And so some Christians, they were afraid that if they ate that meat, and maybe they knew it was offered to an idol, but maybe not, then, then it, they, they believed that it would defile them in some way. And Paul's response to that is, no, an idol is, is nothing at all. Like you're, you're, you're free to eat it. So maybe with the eating, it could have been any of those possibilities. In regards to the holy days, in verse 5 he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So I'm calling that holy days. A couple of possibilities could be religious festivals, new moons, celebrations, etc. Similar to what he brings up in Colossians. As in not observing these days. However, I don't think that's likely here in this context. I think probably what he's talking about is the Sabbath. And even with the Sabbath, there's different views on how to handle the Sabbath. Even today. One view would be that Saturday is the Sabbath. And that's the day of worship. Another view would be that, no, Sunday is the day of our corporate worship. And you hold on to that as the Sabbath. And so no working on that day. Another view is saying, yep, Sunday is the day of corporate worship, but the Sabbath has been abolished, and therefore you can work on the Sabbath. And, and, and there are arguments to all three of these, and it's possible that's what he's referring to in verse 5 of, these, of this day, one day is better than another. But the, the point is this, the, the, the point is not who is right and who is wrong with either of these issues. So that's why I don't want to get caught up in that, because in fact, Paul doesn't even take time to say, hey, you're right and you're wrong on either of these issues. Paul's not seeking to deal with the issue. Paul is seeking to deal with the heart. The point is not about being right. The point is about loving your brother and sister despite your disagreement. The point is not judging them, but loving them instead. Look at what he says in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and not let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Now notice he commands this for every Christian, the one who is weak and the one who is strong. And the strong believer is the one who, who understands and exercises his freedom in Christ. And while they are called the strong Christian, it doesn't mean that, that they just live without warning. No, they, they have temptations to sin as well. Their temptation is to push their freedom so much that they live on the edge of what is worldly and godly. Their temptation could be a lack of commitment to holiness knowing they are free in Christ. See, they err on the side of license. And the weak believer is the one who does not understand the freedom and grace they have in Christ, and in many ways they still feel bound to the law. And so their temptation is to be so afraid of breaking the law, so afraid of falling out of the graces of God, that they put up fences, restricting themselves to assure that they will not break the law. Their temptation is to take away from the grace of God and to add their own self-righteousness to their relationship with God. You see, they err on the side of legalism. One errs on the side of license. One errs on the side of legalism. And the strong and the weak believer look at each other and they judge one another. The strong looks at the weaker wondering why they don't understand the grace God has given them. And acknowledge that they themselves are the strong believer and the other one's the weak believer. Why can't you be more like me, weak believer? And the weak believer looks at the strong believer, wondering why they don't obey God as much as they do. And they view themselves as the better Christian over the stronger Christian because I obey God more. Where might you fall? Where might you fall? Do you, do you err on the side of legalism or on the side of license? Where do you fall? Do you find yourself often judging others because they don't read the Bible as much as you? Because they don't serve as much as you? Because they don't sing worship songs as loud as you? They don't seem like as good of a Christian as you? Maybe you err on the side of legalism. 
Do you find yourself often judging others because they're, th- that person is so uptight and they create all these rules for themselves and others. And, and so you pity them for not enjoying their freedom and the life that God's blessed you with. Maybe you err on the side of license. See How quickly we might become judgmental of others who aren't like us. Do you judge others and judge their spiritual life based on how their performance Stacks up with yours? Now, could this person benefit from reading the word more? Could they be challenged to serve more? Sure, maybe. Could they benefit from understanding their freedom in Christ and enjoy the things that God's blessed them with? Could, could they have a better understanding of God's grace? Sure, maybe. But that's not what we're after right now. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about how you view and judge others. Are you constantly looking down at others in pride with a judgmental heart because they live differently than you? Because they have different personal convictions than you. Paul says, do not pass judgment on them. The word for judgment has the meaning of of isolating and and separating. From, From a legal standpoint, that word means accusing someone guilty of a crime. What we're talking about are matters that are not clear in Scripture, things that are not commanded by God, and yet we take hard stances on it as if it's God's very authoritative word. So we judge others, and we accuse them as if they're guilty of a crime. And Paul says, do not pass judgment on them. Now, should we never stand up for truth? Should we never judge? We should stand up for truth, and we should judge. Judge whether something is biblically true or not. We must be discerning people. We must have good judgment, yes. But we must understand the difference between what is biblical and what is preferential. And we must understand the difference between what is worth breaking fellowship over and what isn't. And sometimes it's helpful to categorize it maybe into tiers. Because that's how my mind works. You know, like different tiers, like tier one, tier two, tier three. Right? There are tier one issues that we do not compromise on. These are clear in Scripture. Jesus is God. Salvation is through Christ alone, not a result of works. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is God alone. There's none like him, etc. Right? Like these are clear in Scripture. We cannot compromise on this. And I think it is worth breaking fellowship over. Meaning, I would not attend a church that teaches otherwise. A church that teaches that Jesus is not God? Get out of there! That's a tier one issue. There's there's tier two issues that I think are very important, but you can still disagree and both still be genuine Christians. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Both people can still be Christians! Maybe you decide it's best not to go to church. Maybe that has a different view than you on this. But it doesn't mean that they aren't believers. And there are tier three and four and five and so on that really are not that important and certainly aren't worth breaking fellowship over. Oh my goodness, in the last few years, masks and vaccines and social distancing, like something like that issue. Just think about masks and vaccines. Oh, You think you should wear masks? Oh, you think you should wear masks? Oh, you think you should get vaccinated? Oh, you think you shouldn't get vaccinated? Well, I don't know if we can be friends anymore. I don't know if I can go to this church anymore. What are we talking about? Why are we dividing over someone's wearing a mask or not, or someone's vaccinated or not? It's important to understand how we can best honor God in our decisions. Yes! But at the end of the day, it's okay if another believer disagrees with you on if you should wear a mask or not. And can you believe that the enemy has used something as silly as that, as a piece of fabric that goes over your face, to divide God's people? That's something that small. And God's people says, I can't worship with you anymore. What? Or God's people looks down at that person and says, man, they... They must not be as mature of a Christian as I thought because they think they have to wear a mask or because they think they shouldn't wear a mask. What? Don't let the enemy get in there and start dividing over silly things like that. 
And at the end of the day, I think when it comes down to these lower tier issues, sometimes it comes down to your own conscience. There's other places that are more clear in that, but I would even say here in verse 5, he says, look, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If your conscience is telling you something is sinful, then listen to it. Because for you, then it is sinful. And do not succumb to the peer pressure of pleasing everyone else when, when, when something goes against your own conscience. And I'd say this on the flip side. If your conscience tells you something is wrong for you, and it's not specifically commanded or forbidden as, in Scripture as sinful, then don't impose your conscience on someone else and say, well, then it should be sinful for you. The point is this. There are going to be differences and disagreements within the body of Christ. And unless it has to do with the fundamentals of Christianity and the core of the gospel, it's not worth dividing over. It's okay to have disagreements. It's not okay to pass judgments on one another. Next, we see that the Christian is called to accept other Christians because God has accepted them. The Christian is called to accept other Christians because God has accepted them. Paul uses the word accept. The ESV translates it to welcome. But it's a strong word here that communicates the idea of acceptance. And Paul uses it in verse 1 and 3. Verse 1, he says, For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him or accept him. Verse 3, uh, For God has welcomed him or God has accepted him. He says it again in 15.7. We'll get there in a few weeks. It says, therefore, welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed you or accepted you for the glory of God. Every Christian has been accepted by God, which that in and of itself is a shocking statement. If we stop right there, that every Christian has been accepted by God, for there's no reason why we should be accepted by God. I mean, remember, without the work of Christ in our lives, what did Josiah say a couple weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are following Satan. We are children of wrath. There is a wall of hostility between us and God. As in, here's me, here's the great wall of China, that's hostility, and here's God. In between us, we are alienated from God. We are enemies of God. But now, now we've been accepted by God? What? Yes, he says, yes, you have been accepted by God. Because in his great love, Christ died for us. Christ gave his life as a ransom. And we are now accepted by God. Not because of our merit. Not because of our accomplishments. But because of the accomplishments of Christ on our behalf. And so now, everyone who is in Christ... Every single Christian has been and is accepted by God. And Paul encourages us to remember this when we are tempted to judge others and to push them out and to cast them out. If God himself accepts this person, this person that you are judging, if God himself accepts this person, even through whatever issue they have wrong, assuming they're the one who has it wrong and not you, if God himself accepts this person, who are you not to accept them? When we choose to reject another Christian, we are saying, look, other Christian who is lame that I'm judging, God may accept you. And he may accept you enough even to die for you, but not me. God's wrong on this one. I, I wouldn't accept you. I, I don't think you should be accepted. That's what we're saying. And we are now challenging the authority of God. But since that Christian, that Christian that we are judging, since that Christian has been fully accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, so too must you accept them. Now to accept them doesn't mean everything they do is right. To accept them doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that person does. But it means that you accept them as a fellow child of God who has been purchased by the same blood. And that now, despite your differences and your disagreements, you will still have fellowship with them. 
That you accept them because God has accepted them. We are one body in Christ. And if they are indeed in the faith, and if they are indeed in the body of Christ, as if you are, then there is no reason to be divided or for you to push them away. None. Why? Because God hasn't. And neither should you. God has accepted them. And so should you. And how is this done? Because sometimes that's very difficult to accept others who have differences and disagreements than us. How is this done? We do all this by standing on the grace of God. Verse 4, he says, It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Thanks be to God for his grace. We need the grace of God to hold us up, or else we fall. And they need the grace of God, just the same. And we need to show the grace of God as well. It is by grace that you were saved. It was by grace that they were saved. And it is by grace that we will love one another, even through our disagreements and our differences. Our next next main section is that God's glory is our purpose in life. Why should we love one another despite our differences and disagreements? Not only because God accepts them, but also because God's glory is our purpose in life. First, we see that in whatever you do, do so for the Lord. Whatever you do, do so for the Lord. Let me read verses 6 through 8. Whatever you do, do so for the Lord. He says this, The one who observes the day, observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord, and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul's main point is not about winning an argument. He hasn't even addressed the arguments. But it's about whatever you do, do so for the Lord. You see, our ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God. And so if you eat meat, eat meat for the glory of God. And if you're a weirdo and eat only vegetables, I'm just kidding, you can eat only vegetables. But I do like meat. But if you eat only vegetables, then eat your vegetables to the glory of God. That's what he's saying. Whatever you do, do so for the Lord. Stop wasting your time arguing and judging one another in whatever you do. Just live for the Lord. In verse 6, look what he says. In honor, he says, in honor of the Lord, three times he says that the one who observes today. It honors the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. Look at how Paul emphasized the Lord again in verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Do you see the repetition? Do you see the pattern of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord? The point is, in everything, do so for the Lord. Do so for His glory. Do so to worship Him. We don't live for ourselves. We live for the Lord. We don't die for ourselves. We die for the Lord. And everything in between, life and death, everything is to the Lord. Is that true for you today? Is that true of you today? Can you say everything you do is for the Lord? Think about it. Everything you do is for the Lord. And if we're honest, we'd probably say, no way. No way everything I do is for the Lord. Well, why not? <laughs> we okay just saying, yeah, not everything I do is for the Lord. <laughs> why not? What in your life is not honoring to the Lord? I want everyone to think about it right now. I know you don't want to because you know it's not honoring to the Lord, but I want you to think about it. What in your life is not honoring to the Lord? Why do that? Why do it? You know it's not honoring to the Lord. Why do it? Now keep in mind, it doesn't mean everything needs to be a Bible study. It doesn't mean everything needs to be a prayer time. Can you have rest and relaxation for the Lord? Yes. Or it could also be slothfulness. Can you eat for the Lord? 
Yes. It also can be gluttonous. But whatever you do, whether it's eating, whether it's sleeping, whether it's working, whatever it is, it should be done for the Lord. It is to live quorum Deo. Quorum Deo. Anyone know what quorum Deo means? That's what I'm wondering. Jamie? What's that? It's close, yes. Before God, before the face of God. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. That all we do, we do before Him, in His very presence. And so we live before God. We live for God. That as you live your life, do you live it through the filter of Quorum Deo? As in, do you live it through the filter of before the face of God? Do you live it through the filter of, this is done in the presence of God. And this is done for God. I am living Quorum Deo. I am living before the face of God. Imagine if you lived your life like that every day. Imagine if you truly lived your life, Quorum Deo. As you walk through your day, you're saying, I'm living before the face of God right now. Can you live your life filtered through this is in the presence of God and this is done for God? Or is God just a second thought? Do you just live your life in your own regard without a thought about living for God? Our lives ought to be about nothing else but the glory of God. In what ways is your life not about the glory of God? That's an important question for every single one of us to ask. In what ways is your life not about the glory of God? In what ways are you living with no regard of God? No regard to Him. What we do as we live, as we die, ought to be for the Lord. All of it. Now bring it back to the context of this passage. When we are hyper-focused and we are fixated on the differences between us and another Christian, we lose sight of the ultimate goal in life. We become too preoccupied and waste too much time trying to convince others that they are wrong and we are right. When instead, we should recognize our unity in the blood of Christ and strive together for the advancement of the kingdom, all for the glory of God alone. We are one body striving towards one goal. Let us not be divided because of silly differences and disagreements. Let us remain united and all strive for the glory of God together. That should always be the goal we strive after. The glory of God. So in regard to eating or not eating, or in regard to exercising freedoms or, or restraining from certain things, really the, the, the question is this. Are you really glorifying God in that? That's the question you should ask. Are you really glorifying God in that? To the one who exercises his freedoms. Are you really glorifying God in that? To the one that puts up fences and adds rules and regulations. Are you really glorifying God in that? If the answer is no, then I would argue it's not worth doing. And whatever you do, do so. For the Lord. Next, as we see in verse 9, Jesus the Lord of both the living and the dead. Jesus the Lord of both the living and the dead. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. There's some incredible truth in just this one verse. First off, Christ died and lived again, he says. Oh! The fact that Christ died, I mean, that's amazing. Because Christ shouldn't have died, but he willingly gave his life for us. Willingly. It demonstrates his great love for his people that Christ died. And the fact that Christ is alive again... It's amazing because it shows that death has no hold on him, but instead that he has the authority and the power over death. 
It is because of his death and his resurrection that we have great assurance of both our life and our death. Because Jesus is Lord over the living and the dead. Over both. You see that? If you are in Christ, you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, he is your Lord right now while you are alive. And he's still your Lord even when you die. You belong to him today, and you belong to him in the future for all of eternity. Nothing will change that, because he is the Lord of the living and the dead. You understand how overwhelmingly comforting this truth should be. Christian, I don't know what could be more comforting than to know that you belong to Christ, and that he is your Lord. Because to belong to Christ, and for him to be your Lord, means that if you live, you live for him. And if you die, you die for him. And so whether you live or you die, you are the Lord's. And why is this so comforting? Because of who he is. Because he is perfect. And he is wise. And he is loving. And he is all-powerful. And he is sovereign. And he is holy. And he is just. Who else would you want to belong to? Someone who's sinful? And foolish? And hateful? And powerless? And unjust? Why else is this so comforting? Because you know that no one can separate you from his love. For he is the Lord of both the living and the dead. No one here on earth. And no one on the other side of the grave can separate you from his love. Because he is the Lord of both the living and the dead. No one else is Lord over living and the dead. So we can live in confidence and peace knowing that we will always belong to him. Why else is this so comforting? Because you know that he is worth living for. And you know he is worth dying for. We may devote a lot of our time and energy to various things, whether it be a skill or whether it be a talent or a job or friends or whatever it might be that we devote all this time to. But in the end, none of them come close to being as worthy of your life than living for Jesus. But to belong to Christ and to know that he is your Lord is comforting because you realize that you are living for the one who is worthy of it all. Who is worth living for. And who is worth dying for. And so sacrificial living really is no sacrifice at all. It is a joy and it is a pleasure to live for him. So our two reasons why we've seen we should love one another despite differences and disagreements because God accepts them because God's glory is our purpose in life. And lastly, because God is judge. Verses 10 through 12. We'll have one point here, our final point, is that we will all give an account to God, our judge. We will all give an account to God, our judge. One of the saddest parts, I think, of not knowing the Lord, of still being rebellion to God, is that is that you, as an unbeliever, you seek to replace God in your own life. And you can replace God with anything, but, but most of the time it's itself. And you worship and you submit and you live for someone or something else other than God. who, who He is who's infinitely worthy of worship and praise. But instead, you turn from God and worship the creation instead of the creator. And so you try to, quote, play God. You try to play God by being your own God. Now, while the believer has been saved from this, and while the believer has repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and now worships God and lives for God, the believer still struggles with, quote, playing God at times. The Christian may seek to play God when they clearly choose to sin against God, even though his, his word is very clear on the matter. But they say, no, look, I, I want to be God right now. I want to live my own way instead of God's way. I want to be my own authority. And God is faithful to, to discipline us and to bring us back. But another way the Christian might, quote, play God is by self-righteously judging other Christians 
and instilling their own laws and their own regulations that's not found in Scripture, but they deem is right and they deem is necessary to be a good Christian. And what Paul is saying is, look, don't pass judgment on your brother. You're not the judge. God is the judge. So let him judge. In fact, he's going to be judging you too. So instead of worrying so much about the other Christian, start looking in the mirror and realize God is going to be judging you too. That's what Paul's saying here. And so we can't forget this. We, as in, we, we can't forget the context of this. That Paul is talking to the believer. Okay, remember that. When he says things like, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. When he says things like, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. He's talking to the believer. He is saying the Christian is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, if you're like me, I might not sit right with you. You might be thinking, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not under judgment anymore. I have been justified. And I say amen to that. There is no condemnation for the Christian. You have been justified. Jesus is your advocate. You are covered in his righteousness and you have been accepted and forgiven by God. Amen. All that is true. And it's also true that you will give an account of yourself to God. As it says in verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. How can both be true? It's important to understand, first off, that the word judge in the Bible is used in different ways. It's already been stated that the spiritual judgment of our sin, if you're a Christian, has already been taken on by Christ on the cross. But here, this judgment is not a payment of our sin. It's not a spiritual death or condemnation. That's not what he's talking about. That being said, it is still real judgment, which every Christian is going to need to give an account to God in the ways in which they live their lives, if it was acceptable to God or not. One way that might help us understand the difference is understanding that, in this case, Paul uses the Greek word bima for judge. It's a different word for judge. And this one in particular, it's not the word for, for a judge's seat, such as a, a judge in a courtroom. But it's a different word for judge. Instead, a word where a judge might sit in an athletic contest. Think of like the Olympics. Don't think of the judge's seat in a courtroom. Think of a judge's seat at like the Olympics, okay? Those judges. That's the specific word he uses here. And those judges were, were placed there in the Olympics, let's say, to examine and determine the performance of the athlete. And if the athlete did well, the judge would reward them with a wreath. And if the athlete broke the rules, they would be disqualified or disapproved. That's what's going on here. Paul's not suggesting that when the Christian gets to the courtroom of God, God is going to evaluate your good works and your bad works and decide if you made the cut or not. That's not what he's saying. Remember what he just said in in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? He's not saying you're going to go before the judgment seat of God and say, Oh, your works didn't cut it out. Now you're separated from my love. No! But Paul is saying every Christian... We'll give an account. What are you going to give an account for? Many things. For every word that you've ever spoken. For every action you've ever committed. For every thought you ever had. For the ways in which you used or you didn't use the talents and the spiritual gifts that God gave you. The ways in which you used your time. The ways in which you used your money. In summary, how did you live your life for the glory of God? That's what you will give an account for. Did you waste your life? Did you waste your spiritual gifts? Did you walk away from the opportunity to share the gospel? Did you live your life in a worldly way and not a godly way? Or did you live for the glory of God? Did you pour yourself out for God? Did you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Him daily? You will have a personal account for everything. And that's something to take very seriously. Does this change the way that you live at all? Does this affect you in any way? 
Do you understand that it matters how you live your life? Not because it secures your spot in heaven. It doesn't. That's not what he's saying. But because if you truly love God, then it is a natural response. The, the, The reaction is to live a life for God. And the more we are in love with God, the easier it is and the more joyous it is to sacrifice everything and to pour ourselves completely for him. And so, as we see God for who he is, our response is to give everything to him. And we begin to live for him. You see, our our job is not to to judge, to criticize, to belittle other Christians. We will not be judged on their lives. But rather, we, we will give an account of ourselves before God. So before you go taking the speck out of your brother's eye, make sure you take the log out of your own eye. Be zealous for you living a life completely sold out for for God. Sometimes we're so zealous of making sure everyone else is living like how you live because you live your life so great to God. Look in the mirror of God's word first. Be zealous for you to commit your life fully and completely to God. As we close this evening, remember that the body of Christ is conducted of of many people who are different than you. And that's a good thing. I know you probably think everyone should be you, but that would be lame. We are all... In Christ, and we are striving to be like Christ, speaking of the Christian, but that doesn't mean that we're all the same in every way. And it doesn't mean that we all agree on all the same things and we all share the exact same convictions. We all hold to, to what this, the Bible, yes, we hold to what this says to be true, and there's no compromise on that. There's no compromise on biblical truth. But it's okay for us to have differences and disagreements on things that are not... Uh, Contrary to the clear truths of the Bible. What's important is that we do not judge one another. But instead that we love one another. And that all that we do, we do for the glory of God. Now I do want to say this to the unbeliever. For anyone here that's not a Christian, I do want to say this. Many times I will hear unbelievers reject Christianity and say... Christians are just a bunch of judgmental people. Maybe you've heard that before, maybe you've said that before. Christians are just a bunch of judgmental people. And I say this, there's a right and there's a wrong sense of judgment. The wrong sense of judgment is for the Christian to look at the non-Christian and think that they are somehow better than them. The Christian is no better The difference is that the Christian, by the grace of God, has been saved from their sin, has been forgiven of their sin, and is now a new creation through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. But it's not because they're better. It's because of the grace of God. That's it. So for the Christian to judge the non-Christian and think that they are better is wrong because it dismisses the grace of God. But there is a right sense of judgment. There is a truth to the judgment that you will you will receive, non-Christian. There is truth to that. If you are not a Christian, you will receive the judgment of God. And you cannot overlook that. And you cannot dismiss it. And you cannot deny it. You are not right with God. You have sinned against Him. And you therefore have condemnation over your head. Because when you stand in the courtroom of God, you will be guilty. And the wages of sin is death. And you will receive eternal death. And you will receive the wrath of God for all of eternity. There is judgment coming. And I warn you, non-Christian. You do not want to be left alone. Standing in front of God as judge. For there is nothing you can do to plead innocence on your own. But there is hope. There is hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the one who carries our burden. He is the one who died in our place. He is the one who is with you as your advocate. 
in the courtroom of God. And he's the one who you can plead as your innocence. You need Jesus. Will you reject Christ and be judged on your own? Or will you accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ and worship him with your life? Now remember, Christian, you need that grace of God too. Remember that, Christian, that you need the grace of God. Without the grace of God, you would still be a lost sinner without hope. Without the grace of God, you would not be able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Without the grace of God, you have nothing. I have nothing. Stand on the grace of God and show the grace of God to others. Do not sit in your ivory tower and judge others. But in grace, show the grace of God and show the love of God to one another. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray that you would show us your truths and your word, that your spirit would illuminate our minds, that we would understand your truths. Lord, I pray for the areas of disagreements, the areas of differences, Lord, that it would not divide us, that we would not pass judgment on one another, but that we would love one another that we would be united together in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would not get distracted by our differences, but instead that we would together seek to live for your glory and all that we do in our life and our death, that everything is for your glory. God, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. For those who do not know you, God, that you would open their eyes to see you, that you would save them, that you would call the lost to yourself. For those who do know you, Lord, I pray that your spirit be working in them, changing them, mourning them into the image of Christ. Be with us in this time as we discuss, God, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Luke.